1: I think the difficult part about lineage and like the expectations of those types of things is that you have to also learn that you have to carve your own path and that's a really scary thing especially if you have come from a life of living in the safety and comfort of someone as powerful as a father that's you know omniman and so um i get that um yeah i deeply get that
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the A.V. Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we'll hear from Oscar winner J.K. Simmons and current Oscar nominee Stephen Ewan, who star on Amazon Prime's new series, Invincible. But first, we have the Screen Actors Guild Awards coming up on Sunday, and in anticipation of that, I'm joined by our very own senior writer, Katie Reif, uh, who's here to discuss the film nominees. Thanks for joining, Katie.
3: Hi, Patrick.
2: Hi. Uh, so, if you listened to last week's episode, TV editor Jeanette Chavez and I spoke about the TV nominations. But today, we're going to dive into the film categories with Katie, who's been all over these films for God, a year now. Uh, it seems it seems like we've been talking about these awards for forever, but they're they're <laughs> finally all it's it's all wrapping up quite soon.
3: Yeah, it goes back to like ten months, I'd say. Yeah. Because one of these films came out in June.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously this this award season has been prolonged and we're ending with we've got SAG coming up on Sunday and then the Oscars later in the month. I can't believe we're in April already, but uh, I here we are. Before we dive into the nominees, uh, do you have any overall observations about the SAG Awards? Uh, you know, hey. Danette and I spoke a lot about how it's great that there's this union that is so active, not just for these high profile names, but for the you know, thousands of actors that were out of work this past year, and it's great that they get to nominate and award each other. Uh, So, you know, we see, obviously, it's the performances, not the projects that are technically being awarded here, which I think is a really cool and cool thing that differentiates it from a lot of the other awards.
3: Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And another thing that I think is interesting about the film slate in particular Is that we're seeing, we see this in the Oscars too this year, is that there's a lot of ensemble films this year. And I think it's great that SAG has an ensemble
1: award.
2: Yeah, I mean, it really does make a huge difference. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the shows that we, a lot of the films that we were upset didn't get any representation in uh, the other award shows get represented here because they really totally. do look at that ensemble, you know, because we can argue if people should have been leading or supporting or if the cat, if the category was more competitive and that's why you don't see some names there. But here they at least get that, you know, we, we, we when we talk about this, we'll see some films that are represented in the ensemble that aren't represented in the individual categories.
3: Right. Absolutely. And it kind of sides... Well, they do have supporting and lead. I don't mean to misrepresent that, but you kind of sidestep a problem like you see in the Oscars Best Supporting Actors this year, where you have both Judas and the Black Messiah
2: nominated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so they certainly like to spread the love around here, which is great. And let's mm-hmm. let's just dive right in. Um, let's start off with outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role. And the nominees this okay. year are Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Chadwick Boseman for The Five Bloods, Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black Messiah, Jared Leto for The Little Things, and Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. What are your thoughts, mm-hmm. Katie?
3: Well... Jared Leto is a bit of an outlier here because the rest of these are all ensemble films. I think that, you know, choosing a supporting role in a film like this is difficult. And I think out of all of them, the hardest one to choose is One Night in Miami,
2: yeah, I think so, too. Uh, it it really, it, it's, I'm glad Leslie Odom Jr. is getting recognition mm-hmm. here, but it's always interesting to see who rises to the nomination level and who starts to get that momentum as it's going through in a piece that's as strong as an ensemble as mm-hmm. One Night in Miami.
3: My personal thought is he sings in the movie also, and that probably mm. gave him the edge.
2: Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100% agree. Um, it's it's also interesting to see here, uh, we have Chadwick Bozeman, He's a double nominee this year, and we'll talk about him again in a second for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So it'll be interesting to see if he is able to rise to success in both these categories or just mm-hmm. one, and, or will there be some sort of splitting, you know, some people voting in one and saying, well, I already voted for him. And, you know, he could end up not being called at all, which would be, you know, sad because he gave some fantastic performances in these, in these projects oh totally although I, I you know will continue to lament uh, that we do not see Delroy Lindo with an individual mm-hmm. nomination here but you will give it to Chadwick um, <laughs> and then we have Sasha Baron Cohen who obviously could have possibly been a contender for a lead actor uh, sure. nomination for Borat's subsequent movie film but uh here he's there for the trial of the Chicago 7 which I do think that he was very strong in that film though again like I think you could I think you could have nominated two or three other people from that film too so totally uh,
1: he
3: had probably the splashiest role in that film you know he does he's kind of the wisecracking character <laughs> as much as there is one in that film and he puts on the accent and all that kind of stuff. So I could kind of see why his performance would be highlighted.
2: Yeah, well, there you go. And So it'll be interesting to see who, who rises to the top there. Uh, but speaking of Borat's subsequent movie film, let's go to Outstanding <laughs> Performance by a Female Actor in a Supporting Category. There we have Maria Bakalova for at subsequent movie film. Uh, Glenn Close <laughs> for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Colman for The Father, Yu Yoo Yoon for Minari, and Helena Zengel for News of the World. Uh, I have to say, just to kick off, like News of the World was fine as a movie, but I really did think Helena was so fantastic. Um, so I'm yeah. glad to see uh, her recognized here. um, as, as well as, you know, the entire Minari cast... The, the the part with Minari that strikes me is that I'm really surprised that we didn't see more nominations for Han Ye Ri. I believe mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, who plays Stephen Yoon's wife in the Absolutely. film? I actually thought I actually thought that she was the was the strongest piece of the entire film. And uh, you know I, I'm sad she's gotten a few nominations at a few smaller award shows, but nothing major. And that's mm-hmm. not to take away from any of the other actors getting recognition. I just I, I really thought that she was the strongest, and maybe that just speaks to the strong lead female performance category uh, although you could argue that she's also supporting it, that that film's another ensemble one that you really at, at any 10 minutes of the film you could say it's someone else
3: totally one thing i think is interesting in this category this year is you kind of have three longtime veterans you have glenn close olivia coleman and Yoo jung yoon who is a big star in south korea Mm-hmm. And so you have those three and then Maria Bakalova and Helena Zengel who are making film debuts.
2: Yeah, that's true. So you you really do have like the new class and the established class mm-hmm. uh, there. It'll be, you know, we were not huge fans of Hillbilly Elegy here at the AV Club. <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, Glenn Close is Glenn Close. But, uh, you know, Meryl Streep had a couple films that could have been up you know this that were up for consideration this year too, and mm-hmm. we don't see her represented here. So it's kind of, you know, you could say, well, it's, it's SAG, and they're going to nominate Glenn because it's Glenn. But clearly, they they didn't do that to everyone that they could have done that to. Um, and right. yet she still somehow manages to to get here, which is interesting. And then Olivia Coleman, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, love on. her to death. Like, there's, do you love her? You love. her her work it's just like there's nothing to not like about her
3: (laughs) no i i fully agree she gives great speeches too
2: (laughs) oh yeah so i mean if anything that's giving me the edge of hoping that it's her but i would really love to one because it's uh the only comedy in the bunch um Mm. but two just because uh you know i think that she had a really hard job in front of her and she overperformed uh maria bakalova i i would love to see take this
3: yeah, me too. It took real courage to do everything she did in that film, but especially the scene with Rudy Giuliani. That took a lot of just I'll say ovaries <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> to do that scene. <laughs> well, it, it 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 it's hard to watch, so I can't even imagine what it would would have been like to be in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but there were other uh, outstanding female performances this year, and uh, let's talk about the female actor in a leading role category. There we have Amy Adams for Hillbilly Elegy, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. here?
3: Well, this is a category where I could see a couple different Uh, winners that i'd be satisfied with this category has the interesting phenomenon of good performance bad movie because (laughs) i wasn't that big of a fan of pieces of a woman either but vanessa kirby was great in that film um Mm -hmm. however i would say that viola davis Frances mcdormand and carrie mulligan are kind of like the names that you keep hearing over and over this award season and i do think that, that that's deserved and those films are stronger overall than the other two in this category
2: i'm a little surprised i've mentioned this before but i'm a little surprised that viola is considered leading obviously she's the title mm. character and so that's uh, you know factors in a little bit and she is the predominant female character in right. the piece but to me it's more of a supporting role in terms of screen time, and I think I think that she would have a supporting win, like locked in. You know, totally. the, the example. The example for anyone that's listened to many of these episodes will have heard a million times. Uh, for me, it's the Catherine Zeta-Jones Chicago situation, totally where. You know, it's it's arguable that she could be either, and you know, I, I'm surprised she didn't go for and and you know everybody's rules is different. I believe SAG gets to determine where they where the voters determine. I think where the um, nominee sits, but it's it's I, I I'm surprised that this is where she ended up. Uh, and and that's not, that's not just here. You know, it's all the other major awards. This is totally. the category,
3: and it's an absolute ensemble situation with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's like you said, depending on which 10 minutes you're watching, there's a different lead performer.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all fantastic. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting. For me, I think it comes to, you know, you mentioned the top three. For me, it comes down to Francis and Carrie, which, mm. you know, I, I think is, is also where we're going to end up in the Oscars race. Um, I thought... Because I, I thought one of them would be a front runner at this point in, in the awards races, but they do seem to kind of both find be finding success uh, enough for me to feel like it's still anyone's game. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Uh, all right. So, uh, how about male actor in a leading performance? Those nominees this year are Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman, Maz Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins, The Father, Gary Oldman, Mank, Stephen Yoon for Minari. What are you thinking here?
3: I think this is a very strong category. Mm -hmm. Some years, uh, actor is more competitive, and some years, actress is more competitive. And I think this year, at this awards, it's actor is the more competitive of the categories.
2: Yeah, I think, I think part of that goes to a little bit of what we were saying in terms of Vanessa Kirby being fantastic, but maybe not in a project that was as revered. Mm-hmm. Um, Viola Davis possibly being uh, supporting, and then we've already discussed our feelings about Hillbilly Elegy mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh, here, these are, these are all fantastic performances in films that, for the most part, were well-received. I think you could yep. maybe put Gary Oldman in the Vanessa Kirby category in terms of feeling about performance versus film.
3: That depends on the reviewer
2: though Reviews that is were true. very mixed on mink yes our uh, film editor a. a Dowd was on here a couple weeks ago and and he, he and i feel the same way about mink which is <laughs> uh you know, we weren't the hugest of fans <laughs> yeah i thought it was fine <laughs> I just couldn't I just couldn't I thought it was cool that they decided to to add in all the quirks of of a film that would have come out at the time in which the the movie is set uh, mm-hmm. but that made it you know the mono sound and all of that made it impossible for me to understand what was being said half the time so yeah. I, you know it, that that factors into enjoyability uh which at the end of the day you know a film could be a piece of art but I need to be able to enjoy it for to uh, to review it positively
3: <laughs> well on that same note in sound uh, Sound of Metal uses its sound um, in a very immersive, kind of empathetic way that I thought was really cool. And Riz Ahmed's performance works hand-in-hand with that.
2: I think it's really interesting th- th- uh, with Sound of Metal that the film finds a way to immerse you in Riz Ahmed's mm-hmm. character's journey. And I think that Riz would be deserving of a nomination regardless of the sound design of, of that course. film. But... I think that that only helps because you as a you as a viewer and a and a listener of the film experience that feeling of unease as as you can't hear things in the film you know in the same way that the character can't and I think that that helps uh a little bit of, it immerses you in that world in a way that that you know people felt about perhaps Avatar something that, that like is in mm. this Ford. It, it's almost like a, a, it's a 3D experience, but an auditory 3D experience rather than a visual one. Um, And yeah. and I think that that's really interesting.
3: Yeah. And his performance works with it in the sense that it's a very interior performance. He does a lot of his acting with his eyes and subtle facial expressions and things like that. It's not a, he doesn't really give a lot of big, loud speeches or dramatic You you know, moments like that, it's a lot of interiority. And I think that that goes along with the immersive experience to where you're really feeling what this guy feels and hearing what he hears and seeing what he sees.
2: Yeah. Uh, You know, Chazwick Boseman does get, we mentioned every 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. a different lead character in Ma Rainey. uh, And he certainly has a couple of those big moments uh, and is fantastic in them.
3: He kills it, too. He's so good. Oh,
2: Yeah. He's so so good. Um, another care another actor here that doesn't get that kind of moment I felt is Steven Yoon. Mm. Um you know, Minari is a fantastic film, and I think he does a fantastic job. But I, I've been a little bit surprised uh, at the, his nominations, um, only because, I, I, you know, when you're thinking about awards bait, it, it, he doesn't have like a, a he doesn't have like an awards clip moment. You know, you always watch a totally. film and you think, oh, well, that's the one we're going to see played sixteen different times at different award shows. And he's just a steady, quiet performer uh, in this film. Um, and, and again, it's fantastic, but I've been surprised because it's not as flashy, and I'm glad that he's getting recognized for it, Um, but it's definitely not a traditional Oscar nomination performance or SAG nomination performance in this case.
3: Right. I think Stephen Yeun's performance in Minari is another example of someone really immersing themselves in the character and the setting Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. I read a profile of him where there's a scene in the movie where his character is kind of just sitting on the, on the land and looking off, you know, at, at the farmland that he's bought and kind of, you can, you kind of get the impression that he's questioning his life choices a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so the genesis of that moment was during a break from filming, Stephen Yoon was just kind of sitting there looking off into the distance and they just started filming him. He was so fully living the character in that moment that he managed to convey these parts about the story during his
2: break. I mean, and that's what you—that's what you're looking for when you're casting someone, uh, mm-hmm. someone that can embody the character that fully. So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, he is fantastic. Uh, I and I'm so grateful for, that he's being recognized. Um, but yeah, it's it's a quiet film, and so mm-hmm. you know, I'm glad it didn't get lost in the fray. Yeah. Uh, speaking of films that are not necessarily quiet, uh, you know, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time discussing them. Uh, but I do want to recognize that uh, SAG also awards action performance by a stunt ensemble, which I think yeah. is really cool um you know i think they could even go further Sad could go even further in finding different niches of the acting community to to recognize but they're uh, just to give them their due uh, the nominees are to five bloods mulan news of the world the trial is chicago 7 and wonder woman 1984 which is which is fantastic i think when you're looking at all this i, I it's hard to argue against um mulan or wonder woman taking taking sure. that award just because of the sheer scope of the of the stunts in those films. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that they all get recognition.
3: Yeah, I fully agree on stunts. It's one of the more working class kind of positions on a set. And those performers are very skilled and put themselves in a lot of real danger for these films. So, you know, the least it can do is be eligible for an award for it, right?
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, that brings us to uh, the, the big one, which is Performance by a cast in a motion picture. So again, these are recognizing the ensemble acting performances, uh, not necessarily the film as a whole. Not that they are saying the film is not deserving. Uh, sure. Those nominees are Defy Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, One Night in Miami, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. One of the things that I see here is, is it really is recognizing large ensembles. Like these are not, you don't see Nomad Land, or even though there's fantastic ensemble performances in that too, but and you don't see promising young women, you don't see films that like really highlight a, a one person. Um, right. You could even say you could even say Sound of Metal falls into that category. Mm-hmm. These are films that really do work as ensemble pieces, which is very exciting because that's not always the case. Sometimes you just get movies that are getting recognized everywhere. And here, like all of these, uh, it's, uh, it's also interesting. I think you know, aside from scope, you could say that Trial of Chicago Seven kind of reads like a courtroom drama play, and then One Night in Miami, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, Menard, like they're all. They all uh, almost act like plays. Defy mm-hmm. Bloods as well has very theatrical elements to it, which is which is really cool. What are you What are you feeling in terms of who's going to rise to the top here? Hmm. Well, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. It is
3: a tough one because they all are so wonderfully suited for the category, like you said. Um, I think that Trial of the Chicago Seven is a script-driven film. Uh. One Night Miami is, to some extent, a script-driven film as well, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, how it has these different scenes taking place in different parts of the building, isn't quite as unified, so my choice would be either Defy Bloods or Minari, because they're very performance-driven films, and they're all about the relationships between the characters.
2: Yeah, I. It's interesting though, like your reasons for Ma Rainey's not being a top contender, because that actually, for the reasons that you expressed, makes me feel like it may be more of a contender here than it would mm. be uh, at some of the other shows that award mm-hmm. the film as a whole. Because I think if I'm looking at each individual acting performance, um, because Minari, as we mentioned, is a quiet film, so no one really gets like that big Oscar scene moment. Um, Charles Chicago 7, it's almost like screaming those moments to me uh, <laughs> in a way that, like, I love Sorkin, and I know a lot of people, you either love or hate Sorkin, like, totally. few people don't have feelings. I, I do love a good Sorkin script, but it, but it does kind of just scream at you, like, it's always at a 10 um, in terms of Oscar, Oscar moments. <laughs> um, and so the fact that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom has these individual moments where you could point to each actor in that and say, mm. wow, they knocked that moment out of the park... When I'm when I'm looking at simply the acting, that's why that kind of rises to one of the top contenders for me. Uh, although uh, almost in complete opposition to your reasoning for it not, so it's, it you know so it'll be interesting to see how the voters react.
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. You make good points, too.
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, but we are, not, we are not SAG members. We are not voters. So we will have to see how this all plays out when the SAG Awards air on TNT and TBS this coming Sunday. So please make sure to tune in. And of course, um, Katie, I know you will be on Sunday evening helping us uh, mm-hmm. get all the SAG Award news out in case you're not watching the telecast, or even if you are, come, come on and read our reactions as well. Um, we uh, certainly appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Katie uh and I know we'll be having it back very soon absolutely I'm looking forward to it but you listeners don't go anywhere just yet because I am now joined by our very own Mara Eakin who recently got this chance to sit down with Stephen Ewan and J.K. Simmons of Invincible Mara thank you so much for joining
4: thank you for having me Patrick
2: Yeah. Uh, So for those of you that aren't familiar, Invincible is a new animated series that just launched on Amazon Prime Video. And Mara, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of what this series is? It's from Robert Kirkman, who is the guy behind The Walking Dead, of course, Um, but it's definitely not a zombie story.
4: It is not a zombie story. It is a comic. Robert Kirkman also created The Walking Dead as a comic. Invincible is a comic series that ran for about 15 years. Um, It's actually been a TV series before in the early aughts that didn't sort of shake out. But now it is a serious. It is star-studded. Like you've got John Ham. You have got, I mean, a lot of AV Club stars, if you will. So, John Ham, Jason Mantzoukas, Gillian Jacobs, like all sorts of crazy guest stars. Seth Rogen. It is about a a young man who comes into his own as a superhero, who like all of a sudden gets his powers overnight. Mark Grayson, played by Stephen Yeun, uh, whose name is Invincible. And then his dad, Omni-Man, who's actually not human, he's a Viltramite, which means he's from another planet. And uh, sort of their relationship and just like a whole bunch of crazy superhero sort of intrigue in the back, too. Like, is everyone who they really say they are and, and all that kind of stuff. It's It's actually really great. Like, I really enjoyed every minute of the episodes that I've seen so far.
2: Yeah, I I enjoy. I've only watched the first one so far, but I've really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, you have Sandra Oh playing Stephen Ewan's human yes. mother. Um, so he's half and half. So he wasn't sure if he's getting his powers. The first episode, it kind of goes in a bunch of different directions, but all in a way that. Like at first, it took me a second to be like oh we 're jumping over here now oh we 're jumping over here, but it really is like a comic, and it eventually all comes together um in a way that i don 't think we want to spoil but is is super interesting and and the dynamic between j k simmons' uh character and stephen enes 's characters is really interesting as like a father and son, but also like one of them is like been the only one with superpowers in the family, but now there's more than one. So it's like he's proud, but also like it's a weird adjustment. It, it's all very interesting.
4: Yeah, is your son a threat to you, like to your fame or to your power? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah, I I really liked it, and um, it's on Amazon, and a lot of people have Prime, so a lot of people can watch it.
2: Yeah, and so you got a chance to uh, chat with Stephen and J.K., uh, which is really fun. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear in this conversation.
4: Well, we are going to hear us talking about sort of their relationship as father and son. They are both originally from Michigan and from Ohio. So I sort of talked about if there's like some down-home Midwest values there. I don't know. Um, I don't know if they really know the answer either. but um, <laughs> And yeah, we also talked about how J.K. and I went to the same college, Ohio University. He ended up not graduating from there, much like every single famous person that ever originally attended Ohio University. And uh, he did college radio there, and so did I. So I think we'll pick right up hearing that. <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me about because this was kind of like
2: a not widely known, but known among the 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 team doing the radio there.
4: Well, okay, <laughs> so basically, OU has a terrestrial like NPR radio station called WOUB, but they also have sort of like a student-run campus radio station, and then each green. When J.K. Simmons was there, it was just like each area of dorms had their own radio station. So he did West Green Radio, which you could only hear. I think it was West Green, maybe it's East Green, whatever. You could only hear it in that area. Like the signal was so small that you could only pick it up in that area. And I did the other campus thing, which was called ACRN, which also when I started, you could only. It was called um, Conductor Current. So you could only, it came out of the electricity in the walls instead of a radio frequency. So that tells you how old we both are.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, I know that uh, that's not something that's super widely known about him, but you knew. And uh, we're going to pick up with him acknowledging that, yes, uh, is not urban legend. He did do radio there.
4: He does have a voice for radio.
2: (laughs) He does. He does. Let's take a listen to that.
0: I did indeed do college radio at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, a thousand years ago.
4: A thousand. It feels like a thousand for me as well. So, but everything's still the same. (laughs) So, that actually kind of ties into my first question, which is that you guys are both originally from Michigan.
0: We talked about that, right?
1: JK, did we talk about being both from Michigan?
0: Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Ganders. Yeah.
1: I forgot about that for a second.
0: I'm like, yeah, no, me too.
1: That's why I I really like you.
4: like on the show, I see sort of like a very sort of Midwest suburban middle class relationship between Mark and his dad, um, despite the fact that they live outside some sort of like murder metropolis. How did you guys sort of envision their relationship and what was it before Mark got his powers?
1: I don't know if, if we explicitly talked about that. I think, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're just hitting on something that is, is in, in my way, it, it, from my point of view, a little bit more universal um, of Uh, a father-son dynamic and a a son kind of coming of age and having all these expectations. um, He has a lot of things to live up to, especially in his own mind um, that he's built up for himself. And I think he's simultaneously terrified about it, but also very eager. I think he idolizes his dad in that way and also wants to overcome him in that same way um, or is learning to understand that. And um, that's something that I relate to as in terms of, like, the Michigan dynamic, I don't know if that particularly relates specifically to that thing. But what I really enjoy about it is that I think there is uh, – and I can't speak for Mark and Nolan, but I can, I can speak from how I felt working with JK. It's like there's just a openness and a lack of pretension, I think, in the way that JK was open to, like, just working – uh, that I really enjoy. I think, you know, I, I, it's hard to describe Midwest in, in, in that way, except to like juxtapose it to sometimes the coasts. And uh, what I love about the Midwest is that sometimes it can be a lonely existence, but also it's such a collective existence. And I think there's a lot of warmth that comes from a place like the Midwest and and, and like the life lessons and the bonds that you make and the ability to see everyone for who they are, as opposed to like, a more judgment oriented reality. Um, So yeah, I, when I do meet other Midwesterners, I feel that vibe of just like an openness of acceptance. And I, and I think that's a really good dynamic to have for this show too.
0: Yeah. I think my, my own uh, Midwestern working class roots are, are, you know, whether I'm aware of it or not, you know, obviously it's, it's a big part of who I am and, and unconsciously I'm, sure informs the majority of the work that i do uh and in some cases it's something that i you know could specifically want to consciously go back to and in some cases it's something i want to specifically get as far away from as i can you know and in the case of, of nolan and uh, you know obviously you know he's a viltrumite which is a, a ways away from michigan but um but there's also, a you know, a very grounded human family reality to, or, or not reality, but a uh, verisimilitude that we're looking for that, uh, that I found uh, very easy to connect to.
4: Yeah, I was kind of wondering if, do you think there was ever a doubt in Mark and in Nolan's minds that Mark would get superpowers? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think there was ever sort of part of it was like, or what if he can just like, kind of punch harder you know what i mean like that yeah. was
0: a trend. no i think uh, uh i mean speaking for myself from nolan's point of view i think there is that you know well and it, and it, it's complex and again <laughs> i don't want to give away any spoilers but you know there's uh there's uh, an uncertainty yeah and and even a, a reticence like like do i want him to fully come into the same mm-hmm. powers that i have as his father uh you know there's a little bit of an potential sort of you know edible thing going on there I mean do I want to continue to be you know undeniably the most powerful and the man of the family um, and and do I want uh, you know him to be uh, uh, his his human genetics to uh to play a role in when and whether his uh, his powers fully develop and uh, I I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking now Stephen
1: yeah no I uh, I think that's, I think that's it. I think that that's, that's the difficulty of this father dynamic, father-son dynamic, because, you know, maybe the equivalent is like, you know, Nolan is like, I don't know, any, anything kind of fails this comparison, but it's just like you set a bar and you hope or don't hope for the same thing. And so, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, I don't know any more that I could say about it either.
4: Well, I mean, part of what I was thinking about was like thinking about it's, it's interesting to think about humanity sort of like being a superhero, but at the same time, like, as you said, JK, like Nolan and Omni-Man is, are, he's not a human, like he's a Viltrumite, <laughs> like who knows if, vil, you know, Vilmanity or whatever is the same sort of like if he has this hubris or, or whatever's going on. And so that's sort of an interesting idea to me, at least as a viewer of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that hubris, that arrogance, you know, for his entire time on Earth is certainly a, you know, a defining characteristic of who he is. And, and again, that, that uh, you know, the ambivalence about whether he wants his son to uh, fully experience that or partially experience that is, uh, yeah, it's just one of the interesting uh, sort of psychological uh, mysteries of the show. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, Mark seemingly gets his, you know, in the show, he gets his powers like overnight. It's sort of out of nowhere. And I love how the show sort of like shows him he's not great at flying. You know, how does he have to learn all that? He has to kind of go to training. How did you sort of imagine the process of him just being like, oh, I, I can do this now. (laughs) You know, I can, I can fly. I can throw things really hard.
1: Oh, I mean, one, it was, it was written into the script really well. I, I, I think, um... I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to answer a question like this because it's animation and it's like such a different type of workflow and like mindset. But yeah, I think I think it's that it's it's that desire and fear of the same thing. You know, it's 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 him um, having built up uh, an expectation of something, and um, he deeply wants it because I think it, in some ways, from his point of view, defines him. And, and um, also gives him purpose or, or feels like gives him purpose. And I think the difficult part about lineage and like the expectations of those types of things is that you have to also learn that you have to carve your own path. And that's a really scary thing, especially if you've come from a life of living in the safety and comfort of someone as powerful as a, a father that's, you know, on And so um, I get that. Um. Yeah, I deeply get that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a freeing and exciting and scary thing. And I'm, what I love is it, it's just such a brilliant metaphor for puberty. You know, mm. I mean, and puberty on steroids. in, in mm. the case of Mark, okay. um, uh, that that was just what made it so just relatable as a as a you know, well as a father, but as a just as a human. I
4: was going to say that's hard enough to learn without all the extra baggage right? that comes having to save the rest of the world um thank you guys so much i really appreciate it and uh go midwest
2: thank you <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's episode. You can check out the Screen Actors Guild Awards Sunday on TNT and TBS and new episodes of Invincible every Friday on Amazon Prime Video. You can find me on social media at Patrick Gomez LA and Push the Envelope will be back as always with a new episode next Thursday. Until then, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.